In 2019, there was $5.4 trillion of retail sales, Chris. What percentage do you think was online retail? Like less than 20%. Right. So most people say 50. It was 17. During COVID, that 17 went up to 19. And now it's down to 16 because people are back into stores and digital retail has understood and learned like Bonobos and Warby Parker and all of these online stores have learned that their CAC customer acquisition cost is significantly more hundreds of dollars per customer versus rent in a retail setting. So in the next three to five years, we are going to see a crazy revolution of online digital retail opening physical stores because they can't afford to be online. They can't afford the costs of the customer. We're, we are too distracted. There's too many choices. So retail is not dead, far from it. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Ford is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Beth, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about today's show. I am so excited, Chris. Thanks for having me. And when I saw your last name was, uh, I believe it's pronounced Azor. Is that right? Azor. Azor. So my my mother, uh, her maiden name is Azar, A-Z-A-R. So it's not very often wow. you see the A-Z-O-R, uh, A-Z-A-R. So I feel like we're already connected that way. There you go. Well, that I that was my ex-husband's last name, but I kept it for our son's purposes. So there you go. My there. maiden name was... A nice German name from Wisconsin, Boheim. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love it. Um, well, you've built a fascinating career. I've really enjoyed following you on Twitter. Um, and so let's just kind of start off, things off with how does somebody become the leasing queen, the canvassing queen, the prospecting queen? You've built a really unique career, um, and I can't wait to talk about it. But how did it get started? So it got started. My parents, uh, we lived in Wisconsin. We owned a bar like Cheers. And my dad got his real estate license and started selling land in Florida. Uh, kind of like, you know, what you've read about. It, he worked for IT&T where people put down $500. And then when they retired, they built a house on the land that they built in Florida. And during one of his trips, he took my mom and myself down to Florida and we ended up buying a house. So we moved to Florida when I was 14 
And my parents both had their real estate licenses, obviously, and ran a brokerage firm. So when I was 18, I got my license because that's what you did when your parents were both in real estate. And during college summers, I would sit open houses and run around and do things for my parents with their business. When I graduated from Florida State, I got a degree in public relations and English literature, and I got a job in Miami. I followed a boy who became my husband to uh, a not-for-profit, and I was a special events coordinator, making a whopping, Chris, $11,000. So in today's money, that's about 30, I think, 30 or 35. And so I couldn't live on that, but I had my real estate license. So on the weekends, I would sit open houses for a developer, and I think I was making 50 bucks a day. So that was good money, 100 a weekend. And that supplemented my main job and career, which I loved being a special events coordinator. After two years, I went from 11 grand to 23 grand. So, you know, doubled my salary. But the executive director called me into her office one day and, and she said, we love you, but your ambition exceeds us. <laughs> and you should go do this real estate thing full time and just volunteer and be on our board. So that's what I did. And I went and worked full time for the group I was working for on the weekends. And they had been pushing me to come full time for a long time because I went from sitting open houses to selling the houses and I was doing pretty well. But so I did that. I quit the job at the Heart Association and I went seven days. So I went from seven working seven days a week to five days a week sitting in a trailer reading people magazines. And I said, I went to the developer and I said, we need to do something. We've got to bring people in here because I had only worked on the weekends and it was very busy. Mm. But during the week, there was no one. And he said, no, no, no. I said, we need to have events. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. I'm building luxury homes and you just sit reading magazines. And when people walk in, you sell the house. And I was just uh, crushed. I thought I left a job I loved for money. How stupid is that? And I just, I hated my job. And one uh, weekend we had a young woman that could come in to help us on Mother's Day weekend because we thought we were going to be very busy. And she said, well, I'm in commercial real estate. You should get into commercial real estate. And I said, that's, I said, yuck, that's selling land, isn't it? That's more boring than this. And she said, no, no, there's this thing called leasing and developers build shopping centers and you do leases with the bagel guy and um, you know, strip mall tent will strip mall Trent will hate this, but dry cleaners <laughs> and, you know, other small time businesses. And you will help those mom and pops achieve their American dream. And you'll be invited to every baptism and wedding and communion in the future going forward. And I said, done, sign me up. Where do I, where do I go? And she said, well, there's this company in Miami and they have a training program. You should call there. So I called there and I said, do you have a training program for people to learn how to lease shopping centers? And they said, yeah. I said, who's in charge of it? And they said this woman's name and she was a sorority sister of mine in college. Oh my gosh. And, right. And so I, she, I call her up. I, t I say, can I talk to her? She picks up the phone and she said, is this Beth from Florida state? And I said, yes. And she goes, you're hired. Just come meet the boss. <laughs> So I um, got, I joined that firm. We had 11 people. And when I left the firm in 2004, I was, I had been the president for six years. So I grew from the training program all the way through to eventually becoming the president. And then um, when I left, we had about 130 people. 
Unbelievable. Okay, I don't often ask this because this is a bit of a personal question, but I, I already am feeling the ball of energy that you are. How did you did your is this did this come from your parents? Like what about your childhood or growing up? Do you think you learned that gave you the drive and passion to, you know, build a career and and have a lot of fun doing it? You're clearly a self-motivated person. Is it something you can pinpoint growing up or is it just a gift that you yeah. have? No, for sure. My parents, so my dad worked at a brewery in Milwaukee, Wisconsin during the day, and we owned this bar at night. So he, so they were an entrepreneur. My mom was the secretary for this guy by the name of Wes Pavillon, who owned the Milwaukee Bucks. Okay. <laughs> so, and so she ran a lot of his businesses and owned the bar that we, our grandparents, my grandparents owned the bar and then passed it down to my parents. So both my parents had these full-time jobs during the day and then ran the bar at nights on the weekends. And my mom was always doing like, like um, kids bus trips to the Bucks games or bowling tournaments or bowling leagues or pool leagues. And, and my mom um, was the workaholic in the family, very conservative risk averse. And my dad was the dreamer. So luckily I have a little bit of both because you can't develop shopping centers and not be a dreamer right. and not be risk averse. <laughs> so I got the dreaming part of him and I have the workaholic part of her and the, and both of them juggled so I can multitask really well. So I'm blessed that I got both of both of those things from them. The, you know, I, they're both passed away, unfortunately, but I wish they were around because the fact that they at, um, 41 years old, sold everything in Wisconsin. I mean, we had businesses and, and properties and lake cottages, sold everything and moved to Florida, you know, not knowing what they were going to do boggles my mind, especially knowing how risk averse my mom was. My, my dad, the dreamer, must have really did a great sell job on her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. Um, it's, it's clear that they both passed on gifts to you. Okay, so you leave, um, you're the president of this company in Miami, you start as a, a training associate, you become president, you grow it from 10 to, you, you know, uh, over 100 people. Um, what happened once you once you left? Is this when you began your own company? Um, and that was the next step? Or why did you leave? And, and what came after? Sure. So I was, when I left, I was 44 and I had a four-year-old son and I had been, I became a single mom three years prior. And so I'm running this big company in Miami and I have a live-in nanny and I'm right driving home, racing home a 45 minute to an hour, 15 minute drive every night. And as I'm pulling in the garage, the nanny's shaking her head saying he's asleep. And I'm like, okay, I didn't have a son at 40 to not raise my son. My nanny was raising my son. So I went to my partner and said, I have to, I have to leave. And you know, that didn't go over well. <laughs> so, you know, you can take a lesser role, which, you know, there's no way that that was going to happen. Right. So I finally convinced him after about six months of negotiating that I had to really, you know, go for my son, Alex's benefit. And I had zero idea what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to start buying assets on my own account. I had been an, a limited partner with him on about 10 assets and, um, and he had been the one that sourced it, financed it. I basically, I was, I I'm a great leasing agent. That's what I do. And I would lease the heck out of these properties, but I never did, you know, the due diligence or, you know, I did the market information, like the market comps, 
but I never did all of the rest. And I thought it's time for me, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And there was a lot of people that were calling me, but they wanted me to have these big girl jobs, you know, presidents or, you know, big, big time jobs that would have taken me away from Alex. So right. I kind of semi-retired. We had had some big closings. So I had enough cash in the bank to just, you know, I went, I became the room mom. I was the T-ball coach. You know, I just, I, I started doing some charity work, which I had wanted to do for a long time, ever since the heart association days that I couldn't do when you're running a big company. And, um, about six months in a company, a REIT out of, uh, Detroit called, uh, Ramco Gershenson called they're a retail uh, REIT. And they said, we just hired four kids out of university of Michigan. We want you to come and train them. Cause I had been during my time at the company in Miami, we, we never were successful hiring laterally. Like I couldn't hire someone from CB Cushman because we had just a very unique culture and, and we worked really hard. We expected a lot from our agents and it just never, you know, transitioned well. So early on, I said to my boss and then the guy who became my partner, I said, we just need to grow our own. You know, I'm going to go hire young kids and I'm going to teach them to do what I do. And that's how we're going to grow. And I think at the height of it, I had 14 leasing agents, which is a huge team for an independent, privately owned firm. And but my reputation started growing that I was a good trainer or coach. And a lot of people just try to steal our people. And some were very successful because, you know, I put a year into it of my time and energy and they just offer them an extra 10 grand or a signing bonus and they got them. Yeah. And shame on us for not keeping them. But my reputation as a coach and a trainer grew around the country because we started, people started meeting people. Well, how did you learn this? Well, Beth Azor trained me. Well, so that started to happen. So um, when Ram Kogershenson called, I said, well, I don't really want to go to Detroit in January, but you have an office in Boca down here in South Florida. You have some properties. Send the kids down here for a week and I'll train them on your assets. And um, that happened Two of the people are still in the business today, which I'm very proud of. And the word started spreading. And now, you know, I own properties, which I'm sure we're going to get to. But about 15% of my time, 15 or 20% of my time is training and coaching retail leasing agents around the country for, for firms, for REITs, for, for brokerage houses. All different kinds of groups hire me to come do classes or workshops or canvas with them and just teach them how to increase the value of their vacancies in their retail. Oh, I, I love it. You, I'm on fire. You've already got me going. My head is spinning. Okay. <laughs> a, a couple things come out of that. And then we're going to start digging into the madness that is leasing and, and buying retail properties. One thing you said, Certain people didn't transition well. Once they had gone to a big firm and learned a culture, it was tough to get them to transition. Why is that? Our expectations were super high. For example, we would go to our shopping center conferences and we would all wear the same thing. Because, And why was that? It's, it's a marketing secret. If you walk into a networking event and five of you are in teal polo shirts, mm -hmm. the, the, the room thinks there are 15 people walking in. Mm. <laughs> so, 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 so marketing gem number one, we all wore the same stuff. So, and we did funny things like we would work during, during the, the savings and loan crisis. That's how old I am. We ha we wore camouflage <laughs> because we were fighting a war and, you know, and we, we just wore, you know, we, we, we were full service and we wore service station outfits. 
like these, like a onesie, like a f- service station of the, you, your, your audience is too young to even know what this is, but it's like a one piece thing with the zipper up the front. <laughs> we did crazy things. And, and we expected, you know, when the booths opened at eight o'clock, everyone had to be there at seven 30. We had an 11 o'clock curfew. It was crazy. Like mo- and if you're commission only, and you work for a brokerage firm, you're, you're really kind of not even allowed to do that kind of stuff. You know, you're, if you're, if they're an independent contractor, you can't, there's rules in different states about what you have to, what you can require your non-employees to do. So we made them employees, we gave them insurance and, you know, we had all kinds of different compensation packages around uh, along the years, but we, and we, we were the largest third party provider for life insurance companies and pension funds. Mm. So I would always tell my leasing agents, we're working for the widows and children like this. You, they need to have a mission like this. Is, we're not I'm not just sending you back to get another dollar a square foot because we can make more commission. We're working for the widows and children of this pension fund. Mm-hmm. And this is our job to create value. So think of the bigger picture. Why? Why are you going to meet in the middle and drop two bucks a square foot when that equals, you know, a thirty seven thousand dollar value? drop like don't be lazy so that was kind of we we were just a a very strange group and it was different and that's why transition was hard what do you mean you're i have to wear camouflage what do you mean i have to be there at 7 30 i don't have an appointment till 10 30 i'm gonna get there at 10 and like no 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 what do you mean i have a curfew like no (laughs) but remember i trained these are kids that i trained i was like their mom and no other groups trained so there, there, there was some appreciation and loyalty because um, no one else took them in when they didn't know when they didn't know they thought a square foot was a birth defect. They didn't, they, you know, they had no idea. A square foot is a birth defect. Okay. I get it now. Once you've kind of, once, once they kind of had thought one way, it was tough to, um, to transition. And candidly, I got to be honest, if I if I showed up tomorrow at your office and you told me to throw on a, a camouflage onesie to go to a conference, I don't I don't know what I'd think about that. But um, <laughs> did, did, did a lot of that was that stuff that you made up along the way? Or were you learning from other people and you just kind of best practices like that is a unique culture? Did you develop that? Did it come from somewhere? Or was it a lot of trial and error? You know, because my, you know, remember I was communications and public relations. I I always had a marketing mindset, you know, how do we get attention? Right. And today I just, I just delivered a, a, a workshop chat with a company with 40 people in a, in another state last week. And the, and the headline of the talk was attention is currency. How do you get attention? You know, we got attention when we're walking around with camouflage shirts and pants and it's it's war out there. Our theme of we had we would run ads in the shopping center program saying it's war out there and it was war out there. So um, we just wanted to be different. So I myself and my partner, we would come up with things like that. Um, you know, we just you know, we yeah, we had some crazy campaigns, some of which would not be allowed today yep. <laughs> with today's. <laughs> with today's, you know, culture that we're in. Yeah. I, 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 I like the old day culture better, but we don't have to get into that. Yeah. Um, okay. Two definitions before we kind of to start drilling into the, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of how this all works. What is the definition of canvassing? Knocking on doors, 
for, you know, in my case, retail mostly, but I did office last week. So it's going into a shopping center and going, I did it yesterday. We went into a nutrition store. We went into a fitness trainer, like a gym. We went into a nail salon, a hair salon, just walking in and saying, hi, you know, do you have plans to expand? I own shopping centers in the area. That's it. Yep. Is that the same definition as prospecting? Same, but prospecting you can do. So when I hear the word canvassing, I'm physically going into their store or their, you know, their place of business prospecting. I can DM on Instagram. I can DM on Facebook. I can cold call. I can send an email. I can send snail mail. So prospecting, I can be at a networking event and prospect. So canvassing is, is going into someone's place of business physically. Okay. And pro, but in, in whether it's prospecting or canvassing, the goal there is to make commute is to uh, make connection with a tenant to start building a relationship with them in hopes that you can basically do business with them in some form or fashion down the road. Correct. And so what I'll say to people, I've been I've canvassed over 10,000 businesses and I've never done a deal the first time I've walked in. So my goal walking in is dialogue. And, my, and I leave a flyer versus a business card because if the boss isn't in, the owner of the business, and they come back tomorrow and there's a business card with Beth Bezor on it, that, that's going in the garbage. But if, a, if I leave a flyer and it has pictures of my shopping center or an empty restaurant with a hood and a grease trap, and I write how many tables, how many chairs, you know, what the kitchen looks like, what equipment was left, what's the tonnage of the AC – that is going to get picked up and looked at if, if he's a restaurant owner. While we're on the topic of expanding, do do most tenants already know that they want to expand before they reach you? Or is part of your job educating them on why they need to think about expanding? Or is it both? So I I believe that every person who opens their first retail store have a dream to open more, every single one. Now, I do believe that a year in, a week in, six months in, three years in, they're like, what was I ever thinking? I can't do more of these. Yeah. <laughs> but enough. they still all ve are very interested in market information because they all have signed leases with their landlord. So if I walk in and say, I own shopping cen centers in the area, are you thinking of doing any expanding in 2022 or 2023? They may not be, but they'll talk to me anyway because they'll go, well, what are your rents? Like they want information to help negotiate their potential renewal. Yep. Got it. Okay. Um, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of deals and, 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 and tactics and things. But if, if somebody is coming to you for training, what are the cliff note versions of what are the big things that people need to walk away from after working with you? And maybe the question is just, if there were the, the the critical components of an amazing leasing agent, what are they capable of doing? We've kind of covered prospecting and canvassing, why that would be important. And if you want to go deeper, great. What other things are you really driving home with people that separate an average leasing agent from an exceptional one? So work ethic is the one thing you can control, right? You can't control a recession. You can't control the rental rates that your client wants you to get. You can't control if the place has visibility or no visibility. So work ethic is crucial, crucial. Like the probably the number one reason for any success I've had is because I've outworked everybody. 
I started with a group of four, three other people. There were four of us. And in three months I had my own listing and it took the other group, people in the group months later. And I just, I would show up on Saturdays. The boss was there. I just worked outworked everyone. So I think work ethic is key. And I think that the most important skill set in sales is to be a good listener. And that means you have to ask a lot of questions. So many people, I would say 90% of the world believes that to be a good salesperson, you have to convince someone. And I don't believe that at all. I believe that you are a matchmaker and you have to ask a lot of questions and your product may help them in the match or may not. But but you have to ask the question. So people say, well, I don't like to sell because I don't want to go in and, you know, spew all of the facts. And, and that's not, I don't do that. I walk in and say, Hey, do you have any expansion plans? Yes. Or, you know, Oh yeah, I'm thinking about it. Oh, okay. Well, you know, what do you like about this prop, this business, this location you're in, or what do you not like? Well, if they tell me I don't like it because it's super busy and my customers have nowhere to park, well, the particular property that I'm thinking of that I want to talk to them about also has a parking problem. So I would be honest with them and say, oh, well, the property that I need a nutrition store also has parking problems. So probably my, my center might not work for you. Um, I, I was watching one of your videos. The, when you think about uh, especially canvassing, but, pro but prospecting too, the hardest part sometimes is just building the courage to go meet a stranger. I'm going to guess that you have an answer or at least a methodology for how, you know, especially folks that, that might naturally be good at sales, but they've never done it or they're timid. I know it takes a lot of reps to get good at something, but what's kind of your answer to folks that say, you know, it's scary to go walk in as a stranger into someone's business and start talking to them? I, my answer to that, so my answer to people that are afraid to go up to strangers, like if you're in a conference or a networking thing, my secret to that is walk up to the guy standing alone because you're going to save them because they are, they are not happy they're standing alone. So if you do, do a beeline to the girl or guy standing alone, you literally just saved them and you're, you're going to be their best friend. So, so that's how, I feel about when you're in a group setting and a cocktail party networking and when you're canvassing and going store to store, you just got to rip off the bandaid bandaid. And I promise you that if you don't go in, if you, if all you go in with the fact that I just want to leave this flyer, we have a shopping center down the street. Like you don't even have to talk to anyone. Just say, Hey, I, we have a shopping center down the street. May I leave this flyer? If you guys are ever interested, you know, give us a call and then get a business card and walk out. They're going to start talking. What do you mean? Oh, you have a shopping center? Oh, what do you have? Oh, I go to that Trader Joe's. Oh, I like that one. They're going to talk to you because they want to talk about real estate. Yep. Yeah, we buy real estate and we cold call owners all the time. And some of the young folks um, that have worked for us, you say, you know, it's kind of scary to, you know, call an owner and ask if they want to sell their building. And I say, you know, you're actually calling them and asking to give them money. There, there's, 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 there's almost not a, and in your case, you're kind of doing the same thing is how can we either save you money, make you money, put you in a better location? Um, you know, if you don't look at it as a sale, but you look at it as something you're giving them, it, it can change the tone of the conversation pretty quickly. Absolutely. During for, for probably from 1986 to 2008, 
I said the same opening line. Hi, we have shopping centers in the area. What are your expansion plans for all that time? And then 2008 and 2009 hit. And I would walk into the stores and go, hey, what are your expansion plans? What? You're crazy. <laughs> and I realized, oh, I've got to change something I've been doing for a long, long time. So I turned, I changed it to say, hi, I have shopping centers in the area. Are you happy with your location, your rent, or your landlord? They were definitely <laughs> not happy with one of those three. And that's when I could start the dialogue. I love it. Okay. What are the main reasons why a tenant in a building would be happy with where they're at and what are often the reasons why they would be unhappy where they're at. And let's assume in both situations, the tenant is financially feasible, meaning they don't like the location because they're not making any money, or maybe you could answer it in the reason they're not making any money is because of X. But the general question is what do great landlords do to make tenants happy and why tenants would say they're happy and what do uh, tenants that often say they, you know, they're very unhappy where they're at? What are the common reasons? So unhappy. So all tenants are unhappy with their rent, no matter how much they're making. So let's just so let's just put that as the baseline. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I have some tenants that love me, and they still would like me to drop their rent. <laughs> That's so, fair. Um, okay. So so that aside, tenants that are unhappy have a roof leak, and their landlord isn't calling them back. Yeah. Um, that have overflowing uh, dumpsters with the sushi guy next door putting raw fish and they're a boutique and it stinks in their back door and the landlords basically the landlord not calling back and taking action is you know potholes in the shop in the parking lot the landlord doesn't stripe and seal or repave or refill potholes anything physically that that makes it bad for their customer you know uh the um those those are the biggest things like during a hurricane we have in south florida the landlord not jumping on there's a downed tree at the main entranceway i literally take cash and 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 call over the first guy in a pickup truck with a with a, a, one of those saw things because mm -hmm. i am going to get my shopping center entranceway open come hell or high water because if my tenants can open if they're a grocery store or a 7-eleven or panera someone that can get open and wants to provide business to the public, I'm going to make sure that they get open. So, so, so any, it's mostly lack of communication. I have sold shopping centers and then gone back and frequented, you know, and been a consumer at my former tenants locations and businesses. And they're like, Oh my gosh, we didn't know how good we had it. You know, I, ne I never dodge a call. You know, I, I call all my tenants back and sometimes they don't like the answer I give them, but I'm always going to call them back and hear them out and find out what the problem is. And, you know, a lot of in retail air conditioning is like a big call always like or, or, or my roof is leaking. Well, is it your roof is leaking or is it your air conditioning that's leaking? And 90% of the time it's your air conditioning and they, it's their responsibility in their leases, their air conditioning, they take care of air conditioning. Yep. So um, they don't like that. Or, or, you know, a tenant moves in and they're in there a year and they call me and go, I, my air conditioner is dead. I have to replace it. That's a bummer. That's in your lease. You have to replace it. Now, you know, have I in the past been a nice landlord and say, well, you've only been here a year. Let me, you know, I'll throw in a couple grand. Maybe it, it depends on how, if they pay their rent on the first and I never have to call them. If they don't have overflowing garbage with sushi, you know, it's a two way street, right? If they, if they, it's, it's, we're a partnership. 
Now, when I was at the former company in Miami and I was working for pension funds, I had no leeway. The lease was the lease was the lease. And my asset manager in Des Moines, Iowa, was not going to let me throw $3,000 towards, you know, a tenant's air conditioning problem. But I, as the owner, can decide to do that if I want. Yep. Um, the, why, would a te- why would a shopping, why would tenants love a shopping center landlord? You know, when we, when COVID hit, I put huge banners up. That's, I, first, I called all my restaurant tenants and said, move out into the parking lot. And they're like, well, what about the city? I said, I'll take care of the city. And I put big banners up. Our restaurants are open. To go is open. I did videos. I went, I, I hired a videographer and, you know, we went and did videos and I did um, YouTube videos with my tenants, even because they were, some of them were closed. I, I call, I have a University of Miami apparel guy and I said, you need to be the local ESPN. Everyone is starving for sports and for, for anything sports, you know, show some highlights, interview former players get on YouTube. And, and so I would give them ideas um, and, pr- and help them promote their businesses. So, and, and sometimes they think I'm crazy, but remember I'm not that marketing. There's a marketing, like I love marketing. So if I come, can come up with an idea, I share it with my tenants. Yep. They're, they're kind of like your kids too. They are my kids for sure. Beth is everybody's but I, mom. But they baby. pay me. I don't pay them. I'm like, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not on the payroll like my kids are. <laughs> Okay, uh, on the conversation of tenants, and we're going to keep inching closer into how deals work and don't, but I'm setting the stage with some some good definitions and thoughts. You talk a lot about an impulse tenant versus a destination tenant. What are you've done your homework? Oh, I've done a lot of homework, Beth. I'm coming at you today (laughs) with all good stuff. It's all your stuff. I'm just regurgitating it. Okay. What is an impulse tenant and what is a destination tenant? And maybe those are the only two I found. Are those the only two types of tenants? Those are the main two tenants that fill every shopping center. Okay. And if you drove around the country and looked at all of the vacancy in the country in retail, most of it is what we call in the elbow parts of the shopping center. So you have U-shaped shopping centers. And in the two elbows at the base of the U is where most of the vacancy is around the country. And the reason that is, it, it lacks visibility and exposure to the main street. So smart leasing agents have to lease destination tenants in those elbow spaces. And what they do instead, many times, is they take the call and the and H&R Block says, hi, I want to lease space here and I want your end cap, which is not a destination space. It's an impulse space. But H&R Block is a destination tenant. So we put the wrong tenants in the wrong spaces. And H&R, so if, if H&R Block called me, I'd say, I'd love to have you, but you've got to go in this corner space because you're only open three days, you know, three months of the year. And I'm not going to put you on my end cap where I could get Chipotle, Starbucks, Panera, though they will never go in the elbow space. They, they couldn't succeed or perform if they were in the elbow space, but H&R Block could be there or an urgent care or a daycare, or the podiatrist, or the karate, all anything that is destination that you would drive by 30 to go to the one. So anything you have a membership, so, uh, you know, a, a karate, daycare, anything you that you're going to go by 30 daycares to go to the one in Beth Azor Shopping Center, that is a destination tenant versus something you drive by and go, oh, ice cream, whoop, let me pull in. That is impulse. And impulse tenants need visibility. The ice cream person in the corner is never going to make it. 
because Chris Powers is not going to drive by and, and not they're, you're not going to see them and then have the impulsive, you know, urge to go visit the ice cream or the yogurt or those types of uses. Yep. And I'm not trying to get too far into the weeds, but just so I'm thinking about it right, an impulse tenant in theory could be a destination tenant, but not the other way around. Meaning I could be sitting at my house going, I want ice cream. I'm going to get ice cream. Um, and therefore it, it becomes more of a destination tenant, but you could never have like a karate tenant. That's like, you know, nobody's ever sitting in their house going, I'm going to do karate right now. I'm just right. going to go find a karate store. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah, yeah. So when you're, when you are, when you own a property and you have spaces that are hard to lease, you have to say, why would Chris drive by four shopping centers to go to this use? So your doctor, your doctor, anything kid membership related, right? Karate and, you know, pure bar, anything that you have to sign up for, you're not, you know, you're, you're not, or like a, like discount volume haircut, like supercuts. That's an impulse. Oh, my kid needs a haircut. I'm going to go to the next haircut place I see. Well, I get highlights. I'm not going to the next hair salon I see. I'm going to go to my girl who I've been going to for 10 years. Yep. I hear you. And uh, you know, when an H&R block calls and asks for that end cap, I mean, this sounds like shopping center 101, like any landlord would know this is the truth. But what you're saying is 90% of vacancy still exists in the elbows. Does H&R block ever get the end cap? And if that was the yeah. case, is that the sign of a really weak shopping center? No. So, so, so there is one time where I will give the end cap to a destination tenant. Okay, here we go. And it's very mercurial. They pay 20, 30% more. Got it. They get the end cap. Got it. So, so, and I say to H&R Block, okay, my end cap's 30 bucks a square foot. But if you want it, if you won't go in the elbow, then you pay 40 for the billboard and you can have it. 40 is better than but 30. But it is, it is, when I teach this in my workshops, it is my, people's eyes bulk out of their head. Why? They, they've never heard this before. God. They they go, oh my gosh. And then I go through the exercise. They, they're all sitting there. You know, there's like six to eight people. I cap it because we go canvassing in the afternoon. Then I say, okay, pick a shopping center where you have vacancy. Everyone's got it in their head. Do you have your vacancy in the corner space, in the elbow spaces? They all raise their hand. I said, now, do you have a physical therapist on an end cap space? They all raise their hand. Yeah. Because leasing agents take phone calls and the physical therapist says, I want to lease space in your shopping center and I love that space on the end cap. And the leasing agent says, great. And they don't, it, it's the path of least resistance. They don't want to try to sell them on. You can have the end cap for 40, but you can go in line for 30. Yeah. And have the whole dialogue of how do you get your customers? Nobody goes to physical therapy driving by going, look, physical therapy. I think I want to go in. <laughs> It's referrals, right? It's for referrals from doctors. Don't you want to save $10,000, $10 a square foot times $3,000, $30,000 a year times $150,000 on a five-year lease term if you just go four doors down? What do you call all the spaces in the middle from the elbow to the end cap? If, if you can see them from the road, they're also impulse spaces. So okay. the end cap is the A-plus visible space. But the other ones between the end cap and the elbow are also usually have enough visibility 
that the, and they have frontage. So all those spaces have maybe 18 to 22 feet of frontage if they're like a 1200 or 1500. The guy in the corner is usually a pie shaped with, you know, 15 feet of frontage and then it's a 4,000 square foot space because the developer was greedy and wanted to build as much as he could on the real estate. Yeah. And is that why you often see just terribly shaped shopping centers? And I'm sure there's some you drive by these days that you're like, I cannot believe anybody actually ever built something in that shape. Is that usually just a greed. developer going, yeah, great. I'm going to try and get as many square feet as I can on this and I'll figure out how to lease it. A hundred percent. Does that still happen even today or are these you know, things. I past. met someone, I'm uh, the town that I own three centers and had me speak to this developer about nine or 10 months ago. And he said, I'm going to build this strip center. And then behind the strip center, I'm going to build the strip of offices. And in the middle, I'm going to do kiosks. And I'm like, you're what? You're going to build a strip and then another strip. And in the middle kiosks in an outdoor, I go, you're not going to lease it. So needless to say that that plan went out the window. So, but yes, developers still do silly things to this day. Okay. What is dwell time? You had a tweet and you said, if you increase your dwell time at your centers by 1%, sales increase by 1.3%. This is why yes. I added benches and music. So I'm assuming this is time that people hang around longer than they should. Yes. So... I have a small 42,000 square foot shopping center. I have a Panera. I have a Mission Barbecue. I have a phenomenal sub place. I have uh, T-Mobile. I have a nail salon, two hair salons. I have a hobby store. If and so, I added benches. I had a, 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 a music like a music academy where kids came and took lessons. And where I got this idea from is one day I drove up to the shopping center and I saw all of these people in these like SUVs and like, what's going on? Like, why are these people sitting in their cars? And I realized it was the music academy parents. So I called my maintenance guy and I said, go over to Lowe's. There's a hundred dollar benches, buy six of them and put them in front of the music, you know, like on either side of line them up outside of the musical Academy. But what happened is, is those people got out of their cars and they sat in the benches. So now when I'm showing space, the property looks more active because there's people milling around and, and the, our shopping center association, ICSE published a report that said, if you can, if you can extend dwell time, this is pre COVID, obviously, the, the longer you can extend dwell time, the more people will think, oh, well, I need a like I have a battery store. And when they're running in and out from the sub place, they might not think of it. But if they're hanging out outside of the nail salon because their nail tech's not ready yet and they see the battery store, they might go in and buy an eight dollar battery. Right. So uh, and then I added music. So now I have these bent, I have this little strip center that is usually not a, a place where you have benches and music. That's usually for the more fancier mixed use properties, but my sales are super high. I'm not saying that they are super high because of the benches and the music, but my tenants love it. The consumers love it. They love the music and they're, they're eating their ice cream and their yogurt and they're sitting on the benches. Yeah. Another thing you talked about, you said your competitor is your best friend in the shopping center leasing game. The center's agent across the street can give you more leads than you can handle. How does that happen? So we all have exclusives in retail. 
right? And some of us, my, my, I have a property across the street. It's an 800,000 square foot property. Remember I'm 42,000 and Susan is the leasing agent and they give tenant improvement dollars. I do not. Okay. So I have leads all the time that I send over to, to Susan and she sends leads to me because she's got this big, you know, huge property. I don't, she doesn't have visibility and exposure like I do. I'm right on the road. So constantly we are saying, you know, well, I can't do it, but go call Susan. And, and we're constantly sharing leads. We have a thing in the market. We have six of us that own pro- that are leasing properties in a, like a 1.5 mile radius. And twice a year we get together, we have what's called dead deal meetings. And we come, everyone's supposed to come with two deals that died that we were working on in our property. And they died for whatever reason, you know, a myriad of reasons. And we each one of us, the six of us bring the two deals. So there's 12 deals that we were all negotiating on in our 1.5 mile area. So these were 12 people, 12 businesses that wanted to be here. And we exchanged them. And I think probably in that out of, let's say the last 10 dead deal meetings we've had over the last five years, I think probably five deals were made. Wow. Okay. Just sharing like, okay, I tried to do this, this barber shop called man cave, but then they wanted to have liquor. I couldn't have liquor because my property, I just couldn't get it for whatever reason, the liquor license, blah, blah, blah. I sent it out to the group, the dead deal group. And one of them did the deal. I, you know, I, I wanted to do the deal, but I couldn't do it. So, and the guys already, they're calling me saying, I want to be in this area. Now, maybe they could on their own go drive around, but it's hard for these businesses to get, you know, sometimes the the property owners don't have leasing signs. So it's just making it faster and easier. The more occupied, Chris, they are, the more rent I get to charge. So we are all in this together and we should all want all of our occupancies to grow. Got it. You just kind of mentioned something. So I'll just ask. What would be a reason that you wouldn't provide TI knowing that your competitor across the street does provide TI? You just feel like you have a better, you know, you have more leverage in a better location or is is there, is it deeper than that? I'm allergic to it. (laughs) (laughs) And that, and everyone knows, like I have two interns here working with me this summer and we were calling for a market study last week and we were calling this a firm in town and, and, and the young lady said, so we, we did a deal. She was telling us it was, we're collecting market comps and she goes, she said to my intern, Daniela. So Daniela, I'm going to tell you how we got $40. And the reason we got $40 in rent is we, what's called bought up the tenant. Let me tell you what this means. Cause I know you'll never hear this from Beth because she's allergic to tenant improvement. <laughs> money. <laughs> so that, as much as people know, I'm the canvassing queen. They also are, know that I'm allergic to, um, I'm just the, the, the woman across the street works for a huge REIT. And they have lots of money. Okay, I am just Beth Azor. I pay the mortgage. I have a couple partners. I'm not giving 50 bucks a square foot to anybody. It's just, I'll find someone else that <laughs> doesn't need that. And, you know, have I given 10 bucks a square foot in TI? Yeah, but I, I can bet your bottom that the tenant put in 20. Like I would never be the one that's buying a tenant to up the rental rate. I I just I don't, I have a big problem with that. And is that because you don't sell properties? Like if you were a seller, wouldn't you want to buy the tenant to up the rental? Yeah, rate? I don't sell. Got it. Yeah, I don't sell. Yeah. 
What's occupancy cost ratio? So occupancy cost ratio is where you take your rent. So let's say a thousand square feet, Mm -hmm. 20 bucks a square foot, $20,000 a year in, in occupancy costs for rent, and then divide that into the sales per year of the tenant. So if, um, so if it's 20,000 in rent and you divide that into, uh, let's say they do 500,000, whatever that percentage is, what's 20 divided by 500,000 or 20 divided by 200,000, but there would never be sales that low would be a 10% rent factor. And that's the rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is the tenant should never pay more than 10%. It's not a healthy ratio. So when I, you know, I was thinking about selling a shopping center a few years ago, and I hired an investment sale broker because I don't do that. I'm a leasing person. And they and he said when he before he got down into the you know nitty gritty in with my my rent roll and my my sales of my tenants, he's like, you know, the cap rate's not going to be as high because you have so many local tenants versus national credit. And then he calls me back three days later and he goes, Mark that wrong. He said, your sales and your occupancy costs of your tenants are so low, they're four to 5% that national credit tenants get a low cap rate because of certainty of staying around. When when you have local tenants, a sub guy doing $2.4 million and his occupancy cost is 3%, no buyer is going to think that they're flighty or not going to live out their lease term. Right. So collecting sales and understanding and having occupancy costs across the board on your property is really, I didn't know how valuable it, it was. And I just like to do it because I always wanted to know how are my tenants doing? And again, being the leasing agent, do I need to replace them? Are they healthy? Do they need to expand? So I'm always looking at the health. I don't get percentage rent. I'm just focusing on how is the health of my shopping center? When I bought one of my shopping centers, I had this sub guy that was killing it. And I, I went and got Panera and Panera said, no, no, the prior owner of the shopping center called me a million times. So I'm not interested. I said, did he ever tell you the sales of my sub shop? Seven months later, I had a Panera. Mm. Well, that brings up a good point because you said, uh, lease clauses I rarely give up on, but many landlords do are one sales reporting, two relocation clause, and three grace period to pay rent. So let's kind of expand on sales reporting again. So in the lease, you require them to provide kind of monthly numbers. Is it quarterly, annually? So I want always monthly. I will give quarterly or annually, depending like, you know, if it's a national tenant like Mission Barbecue, they're going to give me sales on an annual basis. But if I'm doing a local sub shop, that guy's giving them to me monthly. And that's just because one's more predictable than the other? Um, No, it's just the local tenants can't get away with as much as the national tenants can. You know, the national tenants, I'm not going to lose a Mission Barbecue deal over monthly versus annual. Got it. And you already said you don't do percentage rent deals. I don't. I, I you know, malls do percentage rent deals and fancy properties do percentage rent deals. The only way I would ever do a percentage rent deal meet. So there's a lot of discussion right now going on. I'm speaking um, at a conference in Vegas next week, and we just got a list of questions. And there's a lot of talk about percentage rent. There's two kinds of percentage rent deals. There is percentage rent deals where you get a base rent 
And then if you do well, and I, if you do well, we both do well, cause I'm going to take a part of your business, right? right? So the, the, anything over a million, the, the landlord gets 5% of sales. That's, that's the base plus percentage since COVID there's a lot of properties in a lot of markets that are still hurting, especially C class malls. And they've gone to get rid of the base rent totally and are just doing percentage rent deals. Got it. Okay. So that is in cases of recession or COVID or C-class malls where the occupancy is very low and you've got to drive traffic and you've got to get tenants in. So that are those are called percentage rent only deals. So the only way, so I have done crazy deals. I In 2019, December, or actually October, I said, we we're going to have a Christmas like no other people have been shut in They're They're going to buy toys galore. There's a shipping delay problem. Amazon's got delay problems. There's Toys R Us is closed. I'm going to go find a toy store and bring them in my little 42,000 square foot shopping center. So I canvassed, I prospected, I found nine toy like stores in South Florida. And I went and I called all of them and I said, free rent for three months. And they're like, you know, one guy, a, a, a hobby store called me back. He did remote control cars and trucks and said, what's the catch? I said, no catch. I said, I want you to, ex- I want you to do so well that you sign a long-term lease with me in January. And like, he didn't really believe me. I go, come talk to my tenants. I've done this before. So he, they came, I showed him the space. I said, you take the space as is, you got to fix it up. You got to merchandise it. You got to pay me insurance and give me a deposit. They killed it. They did about 350,000 in, they opened October 15th and they killed it. And he signed a three-year lease. And so I'll do that. But I would also, if someone came and I really wanted them, I would do, if my rents were 50, I might do $25 plus percentage rent. You know, I, I could do that. It's, it gets to be very complicated, right? Like calculating the percentage. It's like, I just, let's just make a deal. I'll give you Let's do six months of half rent. And then if you're doing well, we'll do a real deal. I'd rather do something like that. Yeah. But in, in all those cases, they're putting up some dollars to get in. So they've got some skin in the game right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Relocation clause. Never. I lo- I did a hundred and my first, one of my first big deals was a Home Depot. It was 160,000 square foot Home Depot in Miami. And I paid $800,000 to, I think, an 800-square-foot dentist office. (laughs) I mean, the guy, 800-square-foot dentist office was in the way of my Home Depot deal, which, of course, was not in the way. But he had a year left on his lease. I think he was paying eight bucks a square foot where the rest of the tenants were paying in their in the 20s. Mm. And I literally had I, I ever said that was in 1989. I've I've. I, the only way I've, I'll give up on a reload is it's like Panera Bread. On, they're on an end cap with the drive through. I'm not going to relocate Panera Bread, right. but I will not give up. You know, you have one bad experience like that. You, that lease clause never gets negotiated. <laughs> and a relocation clause on behalf of the landlord basically says, uh, I have the right to move you. And I pay for everything. And, I, and, so and you I'm, pay for I, everything. I pay for everything. And I'm doing it right now. I'm moving a lighting store because I have a, it's 4,000 square feet and I've got a 10,000 square foot urgent, like fortune 500 urgent care coming in mm-hmm. and I'm moving the lighting store. It's going to cost me $300,000, but the 10,000 square foot fortune 500 urgent care is, you know, it, 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 it's the reason why we're doing it. Right. So when you move that, you have the right to move the tenant, 
You have to pay for, you have to give them a new space, just like their existing space. You have to pay for the change of their letterhead if they have it. But so you, so I always tell people, look, it better, it's going to be a unbelievably great deal for the shopping center if I'm going to move you. Yeah. And, 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 and to be clear, you couldn't move someone from like an in cap to the elbow. No, no, it has to be comparable spaces. Got it. Okay. Grace period to pay rent. My rent, my mortgage is due on the first and you will pay me on the first. Yep. I do not give a, and when, if they say, no, 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 my, I'm a big company. My, now again, everything I say, if Home Depot wants to attend a grace period, Chris, I'm going to give Home Depot <laughs> a 10 day period, but I'm talking about the, the most of the local and regional tenants. Yeah. So what, what I've done is say, look, you want a grace period, then your rent's due on the 20th and yeah. I'll give you a 10 day grace period. Yeah. And they, they look at me and they go, what? I go, that's your grace period. Your rent's due on the 20th and you got to pay it by the first. My mortgage is due on the first. I'm not a big company. Yep. Yeah. And on the second, they get a late fee. And on the third, they get a three-day notice. So I can tell you with 100% certainty, I have 107 tenants. As of the fifth of every month, because by the time, you know, they, pretty much by the third of every month, I'm 100% c- collected. Yep. They, they know I don't mess around with that. And most of them now, three years ago, we started the ACH. It's in the lease. It's a requirement. So I don't, you know, once they, I just say you have to sign with ACH. I'm not going to chase you. Yep. A mentor of mine told me really early on basically exactly what you just said is if a tenant calls and they've got every excuse in the book, which they always do, you just say, look, here's the number to my bank. You call (laughs) them. And if you can convince them to move my mortgage date to the third from the first and they're okay with it, then I'm okay with you moving yours to the third. And there um, you go. You know, I think that's the game of real estate. You know, it can sound like, oh, man, you guys are so strict by the rules. But as soon as you kind of waver on them and you're known as a landlord that doesn't abide by the lease, I mean, you know, it leads to it leads to just a lot of bad business down the road. It just creates bad habits for everybody. Yeah. And then look, if you if you're not on that, I've bought properties where the guy allowed the tenants to pay by the 20th or the 25th. Here's the problem. They have a bad month. Yeah. It's now the first of the next month. Right. And then the next thing you know, they're two months behind. It's easier for them to close their doors and do a midnight move out than to come current on a $10,000 or $15,000 delinquency. Right. So landlords that are not on this create their own vacancies. Right. Just on the topic of leases, is there anything else besides the standard clauses that you've learned over the years are, are must haves in a lease or, or must uh, not haves in a lease? So must haves is a, an opening date uh, because in the world of permitting, it take it, you know, in South Florida, it can take four to six months to get a permit. I have a guy that is, you know, not even open and I signed the lease over a year ago now. So opening date and rent commencement date. So he's been paying rent since October. So I feel bad for him, but I gave him nine months to get his permit and construct. So he's about to open probably in the next two or three weeks. So I'm, I'm very happy, but I feel bad for him. But opening date, because sometimes people, they, they, they delay, you know, I, I signed a lease with an Indian restaurant and they went to India for three months. Yeah. And I'm like, what, you know, what the heck? 
well, we had this vacation planned, you know, well, then you shouldn't have signed the lease till you got back. So having an opening date that you can default them on and having a rent commencement date also make very, very important so that the rent starts, even if they're, if, if they're lollygagged and, you know, didn't get around to building their store and getting their permit, that's not my problem because I'm taking space off the market. Yep. And too many landlords don't have that. Recently, something new I've learned, you know, so being doing this for 36 years, you can, you, you know, I'm still learning. I've had tenants recently been playing a game with possession of de- delivery of possession, where I don't deliver possession until they give me their insurance. So most tenants want to get in fast. But there's those few that are going to are doing plans and going in for permit and they know they don't need the possession. So they play a game with, you know, oh, I, I haven't gotten my insurance yet. So now we're, we're adding something in the lease now about that. Like if you don't give me your insurance and take possession within two weeks of execution, you're in default. Yep. That's why they call you the queen. <laughs> you know, you learn from these. You learn. I was like, you know, why haven't we given possession yet? Oh, well, they didn't get their insurance. It's been two months. <laughs> Like, hello, they're playing a game with you guys. (laughs) Last question on leases. Was there anything, uh, there was probably some clauses maybe that were temporary during COVID, but is there anything kind of in a, I'm going to go ahead and say we're in a post-COVID world now. We can can say that. Is there anything that is going to linger on lease clauses that tenants are still fearful of that landlords kind of have to accept? And you don't have to talk about all landlords. You can talk about yourself. But is there anything you're doing post-COVID that you had never done before and you're kind of forced to do it because that's now market? So there are a lot of landlords that are having to deal with COVID language. And because I'm fortunate to be in South Florida where the demand is high and the supply is low, we are not. But I have friends all around the country that are dealing with the COVID language, which is if the government shuts us down, we don't have to pay rent. So we did have, um, I had a national tenant that we were negotiating with in the middle of COVID and they had their, their sister company was, so this is my, I have one third party gig and this is my client. And we have a, a sister company that during COVID they shut, they were shut down for three months and my client deferred their rent to the end of the lease term. They said, okay, you don't have to pay these three months, but you've got to pay it at the end of the lease term. And the, and the national anchor tenant was an apparel tenant said, okay. So now we're in the middle of COVID and we're finalizing a lease with their sister company, another apparel uh, use. And they said, we need to add this COVID language. And I said, oh no, we're not doing that. And they're like, well, no, you have to do it. I go, well, we're not doing it. We have to, we're building you a building. Okay, my client's not going to get a loan from the bank to build the building, which is going to cost six million dollars if you have if we have COVID language in the lease. Well, what are we going to do if we if you if the government shuts us down again? I go, you're going to call us like you did in the last lease where we didn't have COVID language and he will work with you. That's what we're going to do. And so they sign the lease without COVID language. But there are places in the country that are that the sales are not what they are with national tenants like they are down here, that absolutely the tenants are um, taking advantage of the situation and and that landlords are concerned. If you have three, if you have a shopping center with three vacant boxes and you want Burlington coat, you're going to give them the COVID language because you need to fill your vacant boxes. Yep. Yep. 
you'll probably remember a tweet I made and you and you and you corrected me. Uh oh. But I Sorry. said no, I deserved it. I said pop up shops are a warning. They never go in great retail locations. And you said, uh uh, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's where I'm from. I tend to find that pop-up shops are in places where they're actually trying to fill vacancy that never gets filled. But maybe expand on that. Are pop-up shops, um, are, are they the new thing? Like, why would a great property want to have a tenant that kind of comes and goes? Okay. So my hobby store, that was a pop-up shop. Okay. He could have absolutely not done well. And moved out in January. So, and I have a, my, I only have three vacancies in this property, but I, I knew it was going to be a destination tenant, Chris, that drove traffic during the holidays. Mm. And it's a retailer. So, in the world of, of shopping centers today, 20 years ago, we had things like there'd be shopping centers with five shoe stores, right? That doesn't exist anymore. And that's because of Amazon, Walmart, and Target. Right. And Zappos. Okay. So we, we, what happened with digital is we lost the pure definition of retail. So, right. So now our shopping centers are filled with restaurants, personal care, which means barber, nails, hairs, and fitness, like pure bar, stretch zone. And long gone are the days with hobby shops or card stores they're gone. They don't, they don't exist anymore. They're online or they're in malls. Yeah. So for me during COVID, I did a ton of pop-ups. I did, I went to, I, I went to a warehouse district where a, a gym equipment company had a 50,000 square foot warehouse full of gym equipment. And I said, you need to come to my shopping center and bring, and, and I had a pier one that closed. I said, bring, all this equipment, not all of it, but bring a bunch of this equipment into my 8,000 square foot empty pier one because everyone's opening gyms in their homes. Mm. And you should be next to my grocery store, Aldi. And how great would that be? And you have, you bring it into the suburbs because who the heck wants to come out here to this 50,000 square foot warehouse? So we did that and he was not successful. Now, so he lasted six months. That was a pop up shop that didn't work. Another pop-up shop that didn't work is I found a billiards guy, pool tables. I went to see his space. It was so cool. Awesome, awesome. Like high-end $3,000 pool tables, pinball machines, like man cave bar setups. And I did the same thing. I gave him six month, a 6,000 square foot space for six months. And I think I charged him, you know, a grand a month, nothing. He also didn't make it. You know, he, he filled the space with cool pool tables and it was in the place where I'd had the lighting store and I had a kitchen and design store and I, you know, he didn't make it, but my hobby shop made it. And I did a deal with a blinds and drapery guy and he made it and signed a five-year lease. So yeah, if you're, if I'm not putting in fireworks stores, right, wow. I'm putting in stores, I'm literally going and saying, what, you know, what's going on in the world today? People are outfitting gyms in their homes. Okay. Let me go get a gym equipment guy to put in, you know, because he, he's adding something of value. He's bringing traffic to my center that I normally wouldn't have. Yep. And I'm willing to roll the dice on the fact that what if, what if he does 350,000 in three months and signs a long-term lease? Yep. Okay. So I do think that there are centers that do pop-ups that have fireworks in them. 
And that is that is the those are the that's when you've got 15 vacancies and they're just desperate. Yep. But there's more now. And, and I think malls, right, see malls, you're you're going to see pop ups in, in malls because they're the occupancy is 20 percent and they've got to fill space. So they're going to do pop ups at percentage rent only deals. So you're right that there are some pop ups that are that have, are the sign of death. Yep. But not all of them. Rest in peace to all the class C malls out there. It's... I mean, look, you know, Lululemon is doing pop-ups all over. Yeah. You, you would agree if a Lululemon popped up, you wouldn't think that's a sign of death, right? No, that's fair. So I guess it's situation by situation, but I, I totally Correct. get it now. Um, is there ever a time where a tenant brings too much traffic to an area? I remember our friend uh, Strip Mall Trent said he declined a Chick-fil-A in his, uh, I guess it was a pad site he could have sold at one of his centers because they just bring too much traffic. You think of like a Starbucks yeah. with drive throughs Are there tenants you say no to because you say, you know, you're too successful or you bring too many people to the table? Chick-fil-A is definitely causes is causing a lot of problems around the country. And even though we all love them, there are absolutely developers that are starting to think um, this is more of a problem than we want to have. So he isn't the first person I've heard that's said that. I don't know if I could turn one down. I the the center where I have the the hobby store, I have a big parking problem there. Um because I have a lot of, I have 16 million dollars worth of restaurant traffic in a 42,000 square foot shopping center. So I am very careful about parking and traffic. And I also, that's the same center that I have the University of Miami apparel guy. So on Saturdays and home games in football season, I have rented the office parking lot next door, paid money and told my tenant employees to go park over there to alleviate the craziness on football game Saturdays. Now they don't go park there. So I tried that once. This is being an active, engaged landlord. Let me help. I'll go rent this lot. You tell your employees to go park there, but the employees don't park there. So I stopped doing that. I did it all through the, this first football, this one football season. And then we stopped because if you can't help your, I can't help you if you don't want to help yourself. But, um, but I will tell people, you know, we'll send memos around. Okay. Big game this weekend, Miami versus FSU, please, you know, warn your customers to come after four o'clock when everyone's down at, at Miami at the game. Like I will try to give them the heads up. So there are situations where there is too much parking. I had a gym that wants to come to my property and I said, okay, are you a, are you a trainer gym? Like one-on-one? -on -one? Oh no, we have classes of 40. Okay, I can't, I can't put that in my center. I can't have classes of 40 people. That's 40 cars. I don't have the space. Yeah. That's a good problem to have. Can't have you. You're too successful, and so am I. Uh, <laughs> how does this, you know, uh, Uber Eats, DoorDash, how does this uh, delivery economy impact shopping centers? Uh, you know, I've talked to restaurant owners that have said, you know, one, and we don't have to get into the margins that restaurants make. I know they basically take all the margin, but they also say, look, our, our restaurant wasn't designed to have, you know, 15 people from DoorDash sitting in the lobby waiting for the, these orders to happen. How, as a retail landlord, like, how do you think about that? Do you think about it? Um, what's your opinion on that? So I, I didn't think about it. 
Well, uh, well, let me back up. So my sub guy that does 2.4 million, yeah. okay, he was always after me for a parking space. I want a parking space. I'm like, I'm not giving you a parking space because if I give it to you, I've got to give it to everyone else. And then I went to this conference called Shop Talk. This is like in, in 2018. And Starbucks and Chipotle and all these people were up there saying that their buy online, pick up in store concepts that were, was brand new back then, they were increasing their sales by 30%. Mm. And I, and I sat in this audience and I went, oh my gosh. And I went back and I called Harry, the owner of the sub place. And I said, Harry, I have a deal for you. And he goes, what's that? I said, I'm going to give you your parking space, but you have to have an app. Because this guy, when I bought the shopping center, he didn't even take credit cards. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he now takes credit cards and he saw his business increase. I go, you have to have an app. And he said, okay, well, we're kind of working on that. I go, well, when you tell me when you have it and I'll give you the parking space. Chris. Do you know what, when he got the app, when? March 1st, 2020, <laughs> he would have been out of business because he was a phone call guy. First of all, the, the restaurant was shut down and he could only do to go orders. They wouldn't have enough phones, you know? So by having the app that he put in seven of his locations, it say he sent me oh, he, the biggest rose bouquet ever because I saved his business because of this. So, so he has a parking place now and it says for to go orders for whether it's buy online, pick up in store, DoorDash or whatever. But I will tell you the brilliance this, you learn this from tenants. I signed a lease six months ago with a sushi guy. He has four other locations. So he comes in and he goes, you see this back door in the, it was an old burger place and in the back, it was two spaces. And so he had two back doors and one of the back doors was in like inset, like set, it had like a sidewalk. It wasn't flush all the way to the back of the center. And he goes, you see that door? I go, yeah. He goes, I'd like to put my, put a to-go window there. I go, brilliant. <laughs> so not only did the guy put a to-go window in this back door, he put a bench and he put a sign. And when you, and in on the window of the front of the space, it says to-go orders around the corner. And, and before he had that sign, I was in the restaurant and he had all of these DoorDash people coming into the restaurant. And I go, you know, you got to put a sign. And so he has outdoor seating and they walk behind the outdoor seating to this back door and window. And all of now, now everyone's used to it. All the DoorDash guys, the Grubhub guys, the Uber Eats guys, they all go back there. It doesn't muck up my front parking lot, right? With these guys sitting there with the cars running, they go in the back, which is an empty back parking lot. It's a beautiful thing. And he put plants by the bench. It's great. So I learned from him. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I love it. That was Harry. No, that was uh, Fat Boys Sushi, P-H-A-T. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're wonderful people from Australia. <laughs> I love it. I want to I, I just want to be a tenant in one of your buildings, I think, and 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 have mom help manage me. All right. What is the circular economy? Okay. The circular economy is um, sustainability. Okay. Right. It's about uh, instead of having uh, styrofoam to goes, Mm -hmm. having, you know, edible things that you can, you know, you can eat with your, with your take your takeout or your leftovers. It, it was a, it was the main topic at Shop Talk three yeah. months ago. Every tenant was talking about the circular economy. They were talking about 
bags instead of plastic bags for apparel for apparel stores that they have to be material bags or canvas bags that everything has to be recyclable recyclable and um it, it went so far as you know how sometimes you get a cup and then you you, you put the cup inside like a, another cup like there's containers and in, in, in inside of containers and it, for food. And it was just every topic and every panel talked about us, the circular economy and how we need to be thinking about recycling and the environment. Mm, okay. I saw you had, you had talked about that. So I figured I'd ask, we're going to call this last segment, Beth buys a property. The, the one thing I didn't cover, and maybe we can just make this part of this topic was common area and stuff of that nature. But when you buy a property, you've got 36 years of knowledge about this stuff. What is a What gets you to a quick no? And let's just assume that the price is right, because we can always say that for the right price, we might buy it. We might stretch to buy things we wouldn't otherwise buy. But what are you looking for in a property that fits your criteria? And what are some things that get you to an absolute no immediately so you don't waste any time on it? So... For me, it's supply and demand. So I get people that call me and say, I find a deal, 25 bucks a square foot. I'm like, okay, where is it? And they tell me the submarket, And I'm like, there's 40 empty shopping centers. Like I'm not buying, you couldn't pay me to take the center. <laughs> I'll buy a center. I have a center under contract right now for 900 bucks a square foot. And the, the vacancy in the market is 1%. I want properties where the demand is high and the supply is low, bar none. That, that's my first go-to. The second thing is I don't want elbows. So I want perpendicular, you know, I want, I'm um, sorry, strip centers that run parallel to the main street. I don't want it to be U-shaped. I, I, I may buy a U-shaped center, but I really, most of my centers are flush to the street. And I like high income because high income is disposable income, which means good sales and rent is a function of sales. So I want the I want people in the area to buy the eight dollar sub, and I want if I can the piesta resistance is a university or a hospital nearby. So that's for daytime pop, so that I get lunch business and dinner business. So those are my so it starts with supply and demand. Again, I don't care if it's a buck a square foot. I'm not buying it if there's 40 empty shopping centers because I'll never be able to rent it. I'll never be able to lease it because everyone's going to always try to lowball the next guy. Right. Do when you go to develop some of these, are you building spec or do you already have several tenants on the hook that have signed leases before you go vertical? So I've built two. Okay. Centers. Um, after I built the first one, I said I'd never do it again. And, you know, now I did it again. So um, the first one I had Starbucks and uh, well, we bought the land spec. We didn't start building until we had, I think I had Starbucks, Verizon, Starbucks and Verizon signed up. So I had 50% with signed leases before we broke ground. The second one I built I had Starbucks. I built the other, I, it's a three tenant strip. The other two spaces were built and not leased. I built them spec and then I leased them. And now they're both leased. As the landlord, um, and maybe it varies by property, are you doing triple net leases or are you doing gross leases? Triple net. I bought one shopping center 
eight years ago and they were all gross leases and I've converted all of them, all 11 tenants except for one to triple nets. So what are you responsible for as the landlord? And really, maybe it's this is a question for retail owners and the answer might be nothing. But is there something that you're responsible for to maintain, you know, a lively presence, a clean parking lot? You know, you obviously said you do benches and music, but is there something required for shopping center owners that maybe you wouldn't see in other asset classes that you're required to do for the tenants to make sure it's a great place for customers to arrive to? Or is that the tenant's responsibility? So that's super subjective, right? I yeah. think that the requirement is open entranceways. Yeah, okay. Okay, that that's that's a must have which goes back to the hurricane thing, like open entranceways, man. I mean, you know, you don't want to have potholes, so that would be good too, but you've got to have open entranceways. That's the must have. And then clean, well lit is a liability, like, you know, my property manager knows I better not ever do a light check at night and there's a pole light out because that's just a liability. But it also is if the woman, you know, the woman is the main customer in the family and she's not going to come to my Aldi grocery store at nine o'clock at night if the parking lot's not well lit. So I tend, my parking lots tend to look like used car lots. Like we add lights to the poles. Oh yeah. Is it true that grocery stores usually pay lower rent than the rest of the tenants because they're the main traffic generators? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The The question that came in off Twitter is, why don't you like CoStar? And maybe you can answer that and then you can follow up with, is there any online tools or software tools that you do like to use? Uh, even as simple as Google Earth, maybe you like to use that. But I think the first was, why don't you like CoStar? Because I don't think it's accurate. And, um, I, I don't have it. I've never had it. And I am in a lot of landlord groups where all they do is complain about how much it is. So I think there's definitely a disruptor. Someone should be disrupting that, but basically they take our information and they sell it to back to us. I I don't, you know, it's a good business plan. I guess a lot of people use it. (laughs) Um, I just don't think it's accurate. And so I do my, you can imagine I'm out all the time. I do my own market surveys. Like I get my own comps. So I have my, my job is I had, I'm teaching my interns how to do market studies. And we talked to five brokers today who told us, okay, we did a deal with a vet and this is what we paid. And this is how much to, I mean, I'm getting accurate information. Now, if I was buying shopping centers across the country, I probably couldn't do that, right? Yeah. I probably would have to rely on a on some online thing, but that's not, I don't have to do that. I'm in my market. I know most of the people, I'll, if I don't know them, I'll meet them and I will get them to tell me the real deal. Yep. So I do think it has a purpose. I just don't know anyone that loves it. I, w- I would not want to be the CEO of a company that everyone hates. Like yep. fix it, man, yeah. fix it. Yeah, it's funny. I don't think I've ever met anybody that loves CoStar yet. Everybody's forced to use it, or at least everybody thinks they're forced to use it. Um, yeah. Okay, real quick. You just said something interesting. I just want to dig in for a second. You've got interns and you want to do a quick market study. You're calling brokers. Maybe you're calling tenants. How does Beth conduct a, if we said I had to conduct a, a market survey in less than a day, what would you do? Or what would you tell people to do so that they could get pretty dialed in on a market relatively quickly? So if they don't know their 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 leasing agents in that that represent the properties in the market 
already, mm-hmm. it would be impossible to do it in a day. Okay. My inter- it takes my interns five drafts okay. to get their first one right. And so today we were calling people that weren't calling them back. So then I got four of them today, like, cause they're not, cause I have the relationships and that, you know, we don't want, if you have a relationship with someone, you want to help that person. Yeah. So, um, so I think it would, I could do it in a day if it was in South Florida, if you sent me to Cleveland, I couldn't do it in a, in a day cause I don't know anyone. Yeah. Okay. And you, I guess you'd pull it off of CoStar, which everyone knows it's 70% accurate. So I guess that's good enough if you're in a hurry right. and, and you understand that, that you're going to reduce the accuracy level. You know, you're going to lo- lo- have a grade lower versus the one I do that might take me a week. If it's, if I'm doing it, it might take me a week to get everyone. Cause I'm really like, I, I, I want to know what were your last three deals? Did you give to like, I told you the story about the person who said, so we bought up this deal. I mean, people aren't telling people that information if, unless you have a relationship. And, and one thing I didn't ask earlier, but while we're on the quick topic of surveys, it's all in retail, it's all about traffic count, traffic count, traffic count. Is that a really big deal? I always hear about that. And and if it is, why and, and how is it kind of used in your line of business as a leasing agent or as a shopping center owner? Traffic counts are important to Chick-fil-A and Chipotle, you know, they're in and mattress stores. Traffic counts are important for freestanding buildings up on the street where they want the eyeballs. Okay. If you're TJ Maxx, you don't really care about the traffic. No one, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time anyone asked me about a traffic count on the street. Right. Okay. So it's more for impulse yeah. tenants. Okay. Got it. Yeah. All right. Here's the final question. Dun, da, da, da. And I know you're going to have a great answer for this. And, and I know that re- the, the word retail is actually a very general term. So you could, I know that the answer could be sliced and diced in a lot of ways, but for some reason, the media likes to say uh, retail's dead. It it doesn't work anymore. And then I have this great conversation with you, and you tell me that all your centers have too much, not enough parking, and tenants are doing sixteen million dollars of restaurant sales and this and that. What do you tell people that go, Beth? In retail, dead. Good question. So, in two thousand and nineteen, there was five point four trillion dollars of retail sales, Chris. Mm. How, what percentage do you think was online retail? Like less than 20%. Right. So most people say 50. Mm. It was 17. And in 1960s, before you were born, there was this thing called catalogs. And Sears <laughs> and Pennies and Spiegel had catalogs. There were big fat books that were mailed to people's houses and they ordered off of the catalogs. And that was 10% of retail. Since COVID, during COVID, that 17 went up to 19. And now it's down to 16 because people are back into stores. And digital retail, online retail, has understood and learned, like Bonobos and Warby Parker and all of these online stores have learned that their CAC, customer acquisition cost, is significantly more hundreds of dollars per customer versus rent in a retail setting. So in the next three to five years, we are going to see a crazy revolution of online digital retail going back or opening physical stores because they can't afford to be online. They can't afford 
the costs of the customer. We're, we are too distracted. There's too many choices. So retail is not dead. Far from it. Bad retail is dead. There are definitely in, in the country, I think there's 3,000 malls that they're predicting 300 will close in the next couple of years. They're, they're, they overbuilt malls in this country. We in Florida, in, in South Florida, I think we have 21 malls. We need to have maybe 15. So, and those malls are going to get knocked down and repurposed with multifamily because we have a shortage of housing in, in the country. And that's what's going to happen. We're going to have housing. We're going to have hospitals. We're going to have office parks. Well, we'll see about it. We were going to have office parks before COVID. The jury's out on that. But we're definitely going to have different uses on those mall sites because a lot of those mall sites are great real estate. So retail is not dead, but definitely we've, there are some markets like we have a submarket here where I told you I got the call $25 a square foot. There's 40 empty shopping centers. Those 40 empty shopping centers, that's bad retail and that they should be demolished and something else should be put there. Yep. And when you hear of a market that's, that's, that's that empty, is it usually like a you know, population flight, people are just leaving the area or is there something else it, usually yes. going on? Yeah. It's a population flight and it's a demographic shift. Yep. It's, it, you never want to, for me as a leasing agent, I never want to lease in a demographic shift from senior citizens to lower income African-American. That is a problem because who do you, do you lease to the hearing aid place or, you know, Another use that is that will cater to lower income demographic, like a check cashing, yep. like you can't and they won't agree and they won't live together. So you never want to lease in a demographic shift. Right. OK, how can people find you or learn about what you're doing? This has been a phenomenal episode. Thank you, Chris. So I'm on Twitter, Beth Azor one. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, LinkedIn. It's all just Beth Azor. Okay. Beth, seriously, this was uh, one of my favorite episodes. You uh, you lived up to the, uh, the queen status. I'd say you're even better than a queen if there was such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and I will see you on Twitter. All righty. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so all much. Right. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.